This is the Think LA podcast from Los Angeles, the center of advertising, marketing, and media. Bill Durant is the founder and president of Exveris Media, an award-winning media agency based in Los Angeles. He has over 15 years of experience helping some of the world's largest and most compelling brands through a combination of incisive media strategy and creativity in media. Bill's mission is to help marketers and brands develop the most effective advertising. A Harvard Business School alum, Bill has worked at 20th Century Fox Australia, OMD, and Zenith Optimedia, he has won numerous industry awards, including recognition from Khan, the Creative Media Awards, the Webbies, and the Clios. Recent awards include a Media Post OMA Award for Interactive Creative for the How Do You Adventure campaign with Cliff Bar, and the YouTube Ad of the Year in 2018 with Brand Bonobos and Creative Agency Observatory for Evolve the Definition. Xveris won Adweek's Media Plan of the Year in 2018, was named one of Adweek's fastest growing agencies in the world in 2019 and 2020, and was named one of AdAge's Small Agencies of the Year for 2020. Bill is also the author of Digital Stone Age, How the World's Most Successful Advertisers Use Traditional Thinking and Innovation to Drive Growth. Hey Bill, welcome. How are you? I am great. Thanks so much for having me, Don. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Bill, you've done so much. Uh, you've, you're an award-winning paid media and advertising expert. Uh, you founded Exveris Media. Uh, you've been named Small Agency of the Year Media Winner for AdAge, um, AdWeek's Media Plan of the Year three times. You've done a lot. Uh, how did you get started? <laughs> Um, you know, I, I guess I technically got started um, on a very snowy day in Philadelphia 18 years ago uh, when there was so much snow that one of my roommates from college jumped off the roof and landed in a snowbank safely. And uh, our, wow. another roommate and I looked at each other and said, we're moving to California. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... In moving to California, I was looking for roles in marketing, wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And uh, that's when actually OMD here in LA mm -hmm. uh, reached out and I got my first job offer and uh, moved out to California. Um, yeah, now almost 18 years. That's incredible. And how have you seen the industry change in that time? Uh, so much. I mean, on day one at OMD, you know, which is obviously a large, very successful and progressive agency. Uh, there was one digital person uh, on the media team. There was one digital person for Nissan and Infinity, and they introduced him as the digital person. And um, now if you look at, you know, pretty much everything that we do uh, has, has at least some layer of digitization, let alone uh, the proliferation of digital media in our field. So you know, what we do uh, has changed so much in terms of the day-to-day, -day. Um, even if it hasn't changed in terms of our objectives and the goals and the things that we're trying to accomplish for our clients. 
Interesting. So tell us about Exverus. How did that start and how does that tie into all of that? Um, yeah, you know, this one fortunately did not start with a snowstorm. Um, I, you know, about 10 years ago, I had done quite a bit of work at OMD, of course, and at Zenith uh, here in Los Angeles and lots of love for both. And um, I was actually freelancing uh, at Zenith um, at Horizon here in Los Angeles, at Daily, um, and, uh, and a few other places. And while I was doing that, a former client of mine from Nestle reached out and said, hey, you know, I'm at Cliff Bar now, and we need a one-person a one media agency. And I thought of you, if you'd like to throw your, your, uh, your name in. So I did, and, um, you know, basically became a, do you think you can run an entire agency, but just you, uh, with all of the elements, including all of the elements that I had never really touched before. And uh, as I was thinking, no, I, my head started nodding and I said, yes. And um, that's, you know, ultimately that relationship with Cliff Bar and then the great relationship that I and soon my burgeoning team built with CAA marketing at the time, now Observatory, um, is really what led to what we have today, which is Xferis. It was uh, an inflection point maybe five or six years ago where we said, hey, are we going to turn this into you know, an agency or keep it as being the consultant and the media person for Cliff Bar and, and a couple of other clients at the time? And we made the choice, my two partners, Jack and Talia and myself, to go for it. And uh, Xferis was born. That's fantastic. And uh, I, I hope I read that number right, but it says that you've grown 300% in the past three years. Yeah. Well, in fairness, we're starting from a smaller base, <laughs> but yes, um, we have. And, you know, again, I think a lot of that comes from the foundation that we laid from our initial client base. Um, and in fact, the first client who was at Cliff Bar and is now at Premier Nutrition, um, which is down the street from Cliff Bar, uh, is... Um, is still with us. And so that, that growth has come from, you know, really building off of the strength of our relationships. And I think to some degree, the quality of our work certainly as the years have progressed. So tell me what does Xverus do, but more importantly, what do you specialize in? Where's your differentiating factor? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, everyone, every consultant to agencies, asks you, you know, what's your unique selling proposition? What makes you unique? What's, what's ownable? And I always like to turn the question around and say, like, why don't you give me a few examples of agencies that you think are, are doing that well? And, you know, usually you get met with hems and haws. But um, I think we've kind of settled in on a really important space, which is, you know, I think most media agencies these days should hopefully want to be uh, data-driven and data-first. Um, but this idea of what we call culture-creating growth stage brands um, is something that we've really rallied around. And the levels that they invest in, you know, we're looking at levels that they're investing in where, you know, there's, they're not necessarily going to be, you know, appropriate for some of the larger agencies that exist. Um, and they're not, you know, so small that they kind of come with their own unique set of challenges 
um, at that size level either. There's a sweet spot that we found in the seven and eight figures um, of annual client investment that if they kind of fit into that culture creating and growth stage idea, um, a little bit more progressive, um, we tend to do particularly well with those types of clients. So when we talk about who we are and, and really the role that we play in the marketplace, it's, I think, to help them get that additional level of service and creativity that they need to make the most of their investment. Um, but they're also, you know, investing enough that they can see a meaningful uh, result from what they're doing. Um, and I think some of our best multi-year relationships have really uh, sprung forth from that, from that approach. So with Cliff Bar, for example, you saw incredible sales volumes with them. How do you attribute that? And, and what was your approach to that? Yeah, you know, really with, with most of our clients that are in that, um, you know, well into the nine figures in annual sales type space. And, you know, we now work with, with Premier, who's, who's also kind of in that general space. Of course, I can't share any details. Um, but, um, you know, when we look at the impact that our investments have, you know, we're looking in a few different places. And I think this is not unique to us by any means. Um, you know, number one is if we're investing enough, if we're investing meaningful levels into a particular brand or product, um, the brand's typically going to come and have their own in-house uh, measurement solution to help them understand the efficacy of what they've invested. Um, for those that don't, we actually provide that. Um, we can do the full um, sales attribution and forecast modeling for the future for them to make sure that we solve for that measurement gap. Um, and that's done in a way that's very collaborative. Um, and then, you know, for others, you know, like with Cliff Bar, there always was a challenge because Cliff Bar was, you know, a really great brand that was not only built with organic ingredients, but was built organically mm -hmm. uh, in terms of its sales. And so we really had to look on an individual campaign and an individual effort basis to see where we were moving the needle. And so we, we utilized some pretty, I think, straightforward and somewhat common tactics to do that. But, you know, what pervaded everything that we've done is, you know, consistent measurement uh, across the board and not leading campaigns, particularly brand oriented campaigns up to just personal interpretation of whether or not they had an impact or worked. Always uh, assigning measurement um, has been, I think, really critical because if you don't have that story, if you don't have the end to your story, the happy ending, um, it's really hard to write another book. And, um, and that's ultimately, you know, how we approached measurement with our clients. Do you feel that as everything has shifted over to programmatic uh, and this automated system uh, of purchasing media and, you know, devising media plans, do you feel that there's a, a set and forget mentality that maybe some people just take for granted? Um, well, you know, if there, if there isn't now, there certainly was uh, a year ago, a year plus. Um, there was definitely more of a set and forget mentality, especially for brand oriented campaigns, utilized a lot of programmatic media. You know, I think a lot of folks found that you can't get away with that uh, during a global pandemic when things are changing. And a lot of our planning models have changed to where it's, you know, it goes from that idea of annual planning to always on planning. And there are obvious, you know, if you're gonna do that one year for COVID, that's fine. But 
there are obvious implications on staffing and workload and work-life balance for teams, you know, to doing that, um, that are very important to keep in mind. But, you know, what we love about that is that it kind of real times things and it, you know, it asks us to get more regular measurement Mm-hmm. Um, so that if a campaign is less direct performance, measurable and oriented, um, you know, we're kind of forcing ourselves to continuously reevaluate it, which I think is ultimately going to help brands. Um, as long as, like I said, we can measure and manage and, and do that all within the context of taking care of our teams. So if agencies are doing always on monitoring, if that's the big change that's happened over the past year, um, you know, we hear so many consultants and, pundits in the news talking about how everything has accelerated 10 years over the past year. Um, How do you see the changes happening as we go forward now? Yeah, I mean, there's so much truth to that, particularly if you're looking at spaces like programmatic, like e-commerce. You know, really, at the end of the day, it's about the digitization of society and where consumers are. And, you know, that's something that I think we like to talk about a lot internally is there's a lot that's coming. It's very exciting. There's a lot that's, you know, we can kind of see, but isn't quite ready for prime time in terms of how things are becoming more and more digitized in the world of media. We're always trying to keep an eye on where consumers are today. And so, you know, if we know that the future of television is some version of connected TV Um, and kind of converting what we consider to be linear TV into a more connected format, more streaming-based format, we can all, of course, already see that happening. But if consumers are still watching, to a large degree, uh, that linear TV, then we have to kind of say, hold on, let's pump the brakes, let's take a step back here and and see. We still may need to be in some of these non-digitized types of environments. I mean, talk about making an impact in the real world uh, with outdoor, for instance. So what we're also looking for is, you know, is also like, how are we gonna be able to buy or plan or measure or do things more efficiently for some of these traditional environments? And that's, I think, been another big push. So it's not just where are consumers, and meeting consumers where they are today and knowing where they'll be in a few years. It's also, how can we make things more efficient uh, from our side as well by utilizing these new technologies? And, uh, you know, I, for one, welcome our, our new uh, programmatic overlords. <laughs> well, when you talk about emerging technologies, you know, we, it feels like just, just as many years ago it was, you know, this is the year of mobile, but of course, you know, mobile had already been there. Um, where do you see technologies like AR and VR and media converging? And do you even think that's going to be viable anytime soon? Yeah, you know, we have been very bullish on AR in particular for a number of years um, because there is a, uh, a simplicity to it. Uh, at least there should be anyway, in terms of the user experience. If it's easy and simple for consumers to figure out, which, you know, we haven't quite cracked the code yet, but it just feels like it's always on the precipice. Um, And it's also, you know, simultaneously something that can provide value. I mean, look at what Ikea does now with their their catalogs and how you can kind of ARify it. 
um, you know, that's an area where the consumer gets to control the experience. They get to choose the experience. These are two good things. And they get to do that in a way that's interactive, that's engaging, um, and that ultimately brings to life whatever a brand's USP is. I mean, those are all win-win-wins. Um, we look at something like VR, you know, it's a little bit tougher because of the hardware element um, there and because that experience is so specific. So it's kind of felt a little bit more niche. And when you're experiencing it, the technology has grown to a point where it's so immersive and it's, it's a wonderful experience. Um, but that's always going to be a harder sell because of that technological hardware component. What I, what I really think is exciting is how are we integrating these things into what we call, of course, the real world. So it's not just about, I need to put on my VR headset and have a very specific experience that I can only have in the one room in my house that's set up for it. With AR in particular, it's how am I experiencing the real world and using technology to augment that? And then of course for brands, it's, it's, a, it's a no brainer. How can I you know, immerse my brand into that experience? That's what's most exciting, I think, from our standpoint. Well, I think to your point, you know, ease of entry is going to be most important to consumers where, for example, you know, Apple has the AR measurement tool uh, built into the iPhone. That's a really simple thing to use. And there are probably ways that brands could integrate that into other applications as well. Yeah, I, I've, I've looked at that since that first announcement as what I think, and I still think will be the game changer in terms of getting AR adoption to critical mass. Um, you know, in the past we've had to use kind of third party apps that no one would have downloaded on their phone ever. And then it becomes, you have to explain to the consumer, first you have to download this app, then you have to open it up, then you have to follow the prompts and then, and then you're gonna see this really cool experience. You know, when it comes from the actual hardware manufacturer itself, uh, it's gonna make a world of difference in terms of adoption. Yeah, the more ubiquitous and easy to use, the more adoption you'll see. Uh, so, Bill, you have a book, The Digital Stone Age, uh, which is available on Amazon right now. And you go through a lot of different topics, uh, which um, I'd like to get into right now. One is uh, you talk about the concept of hustlers versus heroes um, and Nike's strategy. Um, could you go into that a little bit, please? Yeah, you know, this idea of hustlers versus heroes, I think... It came up organically uh, in a lot of conversations that we've been having with brands. And, and what we noticed while we were having those conversations was how Nike was probably doing this the best, certainly at the time, probably still, still right now. And that is that so often in meetings with brands, we kind of get caught up in the moment of whatever we're discussing. So you know, what is kind of going to be the big hero campaign moment? What is the big idea? You know, what is that kind of big tentpole execution that we're producing? Um, and then other times we get caught up in meetings, especially more performance driven meetings, where it's how many, you know, are we going to hit like X dozen number of different audiences and test them all out and tailor the creative to each of those and tailor the creative to each step of the consumer journey. Um, and are we going to do that across you know, these two to eight platforms and, and it gets very tactical and, and very volume oriented very quickly. And that's where we kind of 
saw that we were having two very different conversations, but rarely were we having those conversations together. So you need your heroes. You know, if you're Nike, you're, you're kind of brand anthem, Colin Kaepernick type spots um, that are really establishing what this brand believes in and what its place is in the world. And then if you're, you know, also looking to drive relevance, you need to do that with frequency. And so you're gonna do that across a number of different digital and traditional platforms. And you wanna have messaging that's tailored to each of those. You also ideally would wanna have messaging that's tailored to maybe where someone is in the consumer journey, or that's tied into your e-commerce and performance goals. And so having all of the different diaspora of um, creative executions, but also still having that, that hero or those heroes um, is really what we found, you know, works the best. And that kind of ladders back up to really what the general thesis of the book is, which is, you know, people that think in a very black and white way, um, brand or performance, traditional or digital, this or that, you can almost put any two um, major marketing elements, you know, are missing the power and the synergy of having both. And how a consumer is now expecting to see you in multiple environments, to see you in multiple different ways. They're not just expecting to hear you ask them to buy now. And they're also not just expecting you to put out flashy two minute brand videos. So finding that balance for brands is really what I think has driven success for those that have been most successful. And I think Nike is just a, a class example of how you can go from, you know, emotional spine chilling video to uh, you know, please don't forget to buy this pair of socks from our website and not skip a beat. Well, that sounds like it also ties into authenticity and uh, consistency of brand voice. How do those tie into that as well? Yeah, well, you know, I think for a few years we were hearing about how millennials, and I am barely a millennial, so I'll say us, how us millennials are, are looking for authenticity. And it was a little bit harder to kind of understand what that meant to marketers. But you know, now as millennials have kind of aged up a bit, and now as we see Gen Z, of course, aging up and, and starting into adulthood, you know, we're really starting to see this idea of what is fake, uh, what is being overhyped or overpromised, um, not resonate with consumers anymore. It's no longer about hyperbole, it's about authenticity. And do you actually mean what you say and say what you mean? Do you back up um, the brand that you've built with actions? Um, what are you doing from a, a social standpoint? You know, that is now far more important to many consumers than certainly I would have guessed uh, when I had started in the field. And I think that that kind of extends too, right, to sometimes the choices that we make as marketers for our marketing and media channels. Um, are we advertising? Are we appearing? Are we emphasizing channels that are known for, you know, authenticity uh, and a deeper experience and a deeper engagement and trust? Or are we emphasizing channels that are known for the opposite? And that's, I think, really where a lot of folks have struggled to reconcile you know, something like the proliferation of fake news on certain social platforms, you know, alongside the proliferation of their massive reach and their need to be included in the advertising conversation. And so having an understanding of those elements 
and why they're all important, I think, uh, is something that, you know, goes way beyond what we saw 15 years ago when it was still all about reach, reach, reach. Well, I think to your point, you know, you mentioned social platforms. I feel like if a brand uh, is authentic at any particular moment, they get called out so rapidly and it spreads so quickly across platforms uh, that it, it makes it difficult for them to, to not just handle it in the moment, but to recover as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, it's much easier to, uh, to lose someone's trust than it is to, to build it and gain it. It takes a lot longer. And I don't think that brands are immune from that. Well, and in the book also, uh, just going back to a point you just made, you talk about the motivation behind companies or agencies rather that are either 100% digital or 100% traditional and how they're missing opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully we see less and less of that kind of thinking as the years progress. Um, but certainly over the last few, I think we've seen whether it's an agency or whether it's a, a particular brand or, you know, just one particular team within one of those organizations, um, sometimes folks can get fixated and you get fixated maybe on traditional media or traditional advertising. If that's kind of been your experience of what works the best. And we'll talk about why that's an issue. And then, of course, you can kind of get fixated on the digital side of the world, especially if you're thinking lower funnel, because I'm just getting so much more feedback and I'm getting return on ad spend and ROI. I'm getting all these different numbers that uh, seem to indicate accountability. And so, you know, what we're looking at is, you know, is either of these mindsets more right than the other? I I don't know that that's necessarily the right question. The, The right question is, how can we best combine these for the most effect? How can we get people out of their black and white thinking? And that's, again, a, a very central thesis to Digital Stone Age because the research shows, and this is if you use pretty much any well-regarded research source that you know is more of a meta-study over you know, dozens, hundreds, you know, over a thousand brands, rather than individuals through scenarios and situations, the research tells us that Combining traditional media with digital media is far and away the most effective approach from a media mix standpoint. And that's at a very broad generic level across all brands, but it extends down into almost all use cases. And if we know that, uh, and we also know that combining an awareness driven message or an upper funnel message with a lower funnel message is far more effective than just using that buy now lower funnel Uh, type of approach, you know, really the question becomes, why aren't more marketers thinking that way? And a lot of very modern marketers who are very well versed in the digital space um, and finding success there, you know, what they're not seeing is that that accountability and that measurement from traditional media. And that's where I think there's kind of a measurement gap. Good news there is that there's a solve for that There are traditional sources like marketing mix models that most folks, especially at big brands are familiar with. There are now ways to build out those models for significantly less money um, and to do that in a way that's equally as effective in understanding what's been been effective at driving sales for a brand. The other kind of mistake that a lot of people make is they assume that if something is more upper funnel or awareness driven that, you know, 
that's a long-term thing. And how are most of us judged in this world these days? Well, certainly if you look at the stock market and most public companies, you're being judged on a quarterly basis. So long-term doesn't, you know, that sounds interesting, but I, I, you know, I've got to be optimized towards what's happening today. What we kind of fail to realize is that all media is performance media. And so there's this big insight around like all media can work for you short-term, but only awareness and upper funnel media is really optimized to work for you in a way that also builds your sales over the medium term and over the long term. And so if we can kind of understand what the science says about this, because intuitively we're gonna think differently. We're gonna be looking at those ROAS figures from our lower funnel media and the lower funnel work that we do and get really addicted to those. But if we can look at things objectively and more broadly and put the right measurement in place, we can take a more uh, appropriate and science-driven approach to marketing than what we're seeing a lot of folks do today. So that goes back to your point earlier about consistent and constant monitoring. Uh, do you feel that there's not a lot of that happening uh, within some companies where uh, they may just be reporting the results, but really not putting in enough of the time to analyze them appropriately? Yeah, you know, I think in a lot of cases, it just comes down to data and what data do I have access to and what is the quality and the frequency of that data? Um, you know, for instance, we work with a lot of packaged goods brands and, you know, we know almost instantaneously what's happening with them from an e-commerce standpoint. And we may not know for weeks or even months sometimes what happened from an offline standpoint. And the bulk of many of their sales is still offline. And, you know, you contrast that with a brand that's sold exclusively online. It's D2C. It's got a, you know, charged up marketing uh, department internally, great agencies, you know, and they're just constantly evaluating and reviewing things. There is a huge disparity in data and thus the ability to draw conclusions and insights and, and have really adequate ongoing consistent measurement. So, you know, as much as um, we want folks to fix that and we've, we've got ways to do that um, to a pretty adequate degree, in fact, uh, with some of the models that we can build these days and some of the new modeling programs, you know, ultimately it's going to come down to data in and data out um, to determine your success there. One more question for you. You talk about marketing with a purpose and where some companies may have made mistakes and how they recovered. Uh, can you go into a little bit about that, please? Yeah. And this is a good, it's a good follow-up, right. About the conversation around authenticity and um, when we look at marketing with a purpose, we think that there is absolutely a role for purpose because to some degree, as long as consumers are being ethical in what they want, what the consumer wants, what the consumer is looking for is ultimately one of our primary missions as a marketer, if not the primary mission, um, to satisfy. And if consumers want brands with a purpose, and that's certainly something that we see more from younger generations, even as Gen Z and millennials slowly start to age up, um, you know, then that's what we need to, you know, to give them if that's something that is authentic to our brand. You know, that's something that we can lean into. Um, what we don't want are the, you know, let's, 
you know, donate your tops of, of whatever product and we're going to, you know, donate to some medical cause and really just make a big meal out of it and not really have any kind of authentic connection to whatever that medical cause is. You know, it's really just a marketing scheme at the end of the day. Um, it's not something that we would do if you turned all the lights off and people weren't watching us. And I think that consumers are much better these days at kind of seeing through that and reading through that. And so that's why authenticity is so critical with purpose. If it makes sense uh, inherently uh, for your brand, if it's something that you would do, even if you knew that absolutely no one would ever find out about it in terms of supporting a type of organization or a charity or a movement or a social cause, um, you know, then you probably have a right to share that and to speak about that. You have to be ready for, um, for some backlash. You know, we've seen that with some campaigns that we've worked on where people were very divided. Um, but even with those, what we found was that, you know, as much as it might've given some of us a heart attack to see some of the comments that were written about campaigns, um, ultimately they led to a ton of interest and you know, significant sales and a really impactful uh, ROI story um, when all the measurement was said and done. So Bill, what do you hope people walk away with after reading this book? You know, I hope that we walk away with a broader perspective on marketing and just get out of, you know, areas where maybe our point of view is a little bit myopic or narrow and understand that there's a broader viewpoint out there. And it doesn't matter what side of any kind of debate or equation you're coming from. You know, what we're finding is that the people who can kind of have the, you know, live with the dissonance of uh, digital, is, digital is the future and it's engaging and I'm getting ROI figures and simultaneously TV works and TV is powerful and TV still drives reach for brands, which is important for their growth. If you can live with dissonance like that, um, you'll be able to thrive uh, much more effectively um, as an agency or, or marketing, uh, marketing person. So, you know, that ultimately to me is the sign of somebody who I think really understood and understands uh, the central thesis of the book versus you know some of the interesting things and interesting points that may have been made throughout around what's happening now and around what's happening in the future and what's exciting about that so um so to me a balanced viewpoint uh means you're on uh, team experience that's great uh, we've been talking with Bill Durant, who's CEO of Xverus Media and the author of Digital Stone Age, How the World's Most Successful Advertisers Use Traditional Thinking and Innovation to Drive Growth. Bill, you've been a big supporter of ThinkLA, and thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Don, to the whole ThinkLA community. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode. To find out more about our upcoming webinars and events, please go to thinkla.org. You'll also find information on membership and how we continue our mission of serving the Los Angeles advertising, marketing, and media community. Take care.